hello hello welcome back to loki's librarian i am your librarian katrina if you are new here welcome this is where i am reading my enormous library of books that you see behind me and then i give you a quick synopsis and i tell you what i think about them so if you like books just aren't sure what to read next hit that subscribe button like and share my videos let me know what you think in the comments now i messed up a bit with picking this week's book which is um hang on a second wasn't quite ready here. I'm flustered today. I'm running behind on multiple levels. This week's book of the week is Battle Cry of Freedom, The Civil War Era by James McPherson. Now, I had intended to read this one over the course of two weeks. That was my intention. This is because I forgot a bunch of other things that I had planned for August, which cuts into my reading time. So instead, I am reviewing this book over the next three weeks, pushing out uh, President Andrew Johnson to the end of September and skipping a president in the month of August. Life just kind of got in the way on me happens happens to the best of us on the plus side that while there is not a defined part one two or three to this book there is a natural break point which allowed for reviewing this week so i'm kind of doing the first eight chapters of this book because that specifically covers the politics in the country which led up to the civil war so that makes this week's cocktail the rather appropriately named antebellum antebellum meaning the area before the civil war uh, the drink is two ounces of rye whiskey, a half ounce of Tiffelman's burnt sugar, a half ounce of Amaro, and one quarter ounce of, it's supposed to be green chartreuse. I'm using yellow because I could not, for the love of God, find green chartreuse in Reno, Nevada. You would think that somebody somewhere would have this, but apparently it's entirely out of stock everywhere. So let's do this. Now, first off, the first eight chapters were a little bit of a slog for me. Not because it's badly written, it's not. James McPherson is actually a fairly engaging writer. He's good at pulling people in and explaining what's going on. And it's not because the topic's not interesting, it absolutely is. But it's rather, okay, I'm twisting this and it's a cork, that's dumb. But the reason it was a bit of a slog for me was because it's basically just rehashing old ground that I have been covering and reading through all year as I review a president of a month. So, because history doesn't happen in a vacuum. So the same issues that were besetting the country when uh, James Polk was president were also besetting the country as we come into the, 50, into the 1850s with Fillmore and Pierce and Buchanan. All of these have been addressed already. So I'm kind of having to, to fight my way through reading them again and again and again. I did it. But that, that kind of helped add to the slogginess of the situation for me. Now, I am actually using a local rye whiskey from, this is the Depot Craft Brewery and Distillery here in Reno, Nevada. Not sponsored. This is just what I happen to have that's pure rye whiskey. So we're going to go that. Unlike in those other books on the presidents where I kind of didn't necessarily report on that information, this week I'm going to kind of start actually going over some of those things that made it such a big deal and contributed to the problems that led up to the Civil War. Now the book opens by explaining the key differences between the North and the South in the decades leading up to the Civil War. And to explain that, he has to explain how policy differences between North and South impacted growth in these areas of the country. So in the South, cotton was booming. All right, it, it had been booming for a while. It kind of went through some boom and bust cycles. Um, but at the high, it made the South outstandingly wealthy. I mean, just the, the wealth that was flowing through the South was fantastic. The biggest problem to increasing wealth the South experienced 
is the fact that they didn't have any manufacturing plants in the South with which to create the cotton uh, fabric. They just grew the cotton plants. So they would grow the cotton, have their slaves pick the cotton, and then ship the cotton to the northern manufacturing plants in Massachusetts and New Hampshire for production into fabric before it would then be shipped back to the South. They did try a couple of times to correct that problem, but it never really took off. So overall, the South was the agricultural center and the North was the manufacturing center. And this created a great deal of inequity between the South and the North. So, and I, I know that at least when I was in school, it was taught that basically the South was very antiquated because they held on to their slave past and it wasn't necessary anymore because the cotton gin was invented in the early 19th century, which was making slavery basically obsolete. It no longer needed to even exist. Um, the cotton gin isn't actually uh, discussed in the book as any sort of a contributing factor to anything. I thought that was interesting. The South was very dead set on holding on to their ways. No idea why, but they did. So anyways, the cotton gin may have made processing cotton faster, but not having to pay your workers is a real boon to profits in the South. I think that is probably why the cotton gin didn't have the impact that school likes to teach. That and, to be fair, teaching that all of the racism was on the South side, none of it was in the North, helped sell the narrative that this was all about freeing the slaves. It was not in the North. Remember, learn that from Abraham Lincoln's book. They were just as racist in the North. They just didn't, they did not feel that black people were equal. They just thought that they shouldn't be slaves. And there's a world of difference between those two schools of thoughts. Uh, John Brown genuinely thought they were equal and he frankly died a martyr to the cause. Uh, half ounce. So I think the big difference with the chartreuses is yellow chartreuse is a little bit sweeter than green chartreuse. So this is probably gonna be even a little bit sweeter because of the burnt sugar syrup. So not having to pay your workers is a boon. So much so, and this is really ironic, and let's see if you can recommend or recognize some trends between ye olden days and today, that the slaveholders in the South called the workers in the North wage slaves. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Where else have we been hearing wage slave? Give me a moment to think about that while I pour the chartreuse. I have to eyeball this because I only need a quarter ounce. I guess it's far better to work for free for your overlords than to earn an honest wage working for somebody else. Now in the North, the population is booming. See, all those immigrants that were coming to America seeking the American dream didn't just land in the North and choose to stay there. There was no future for them in the South. Why would the Southerners pay a wage slave to do work which they could just order their slaves to do for free? So the North got all the immigrants which is not necessarily a picnic. Uh, racism was also rampant in the North and not just against you know, the, the, the freed blacks. It was also rampant against uh, certain immigrant populations, the Irish and the Italians specifically come to mind. Um, part of that was because of their Catholicism. They absolutely hated poppery in the North. This is a stirred cocktail, give me a moment. While abolitionism was very much a thing in the North and started in the North and stayed in the North, uh, there was a steady and growing population of Northerners who believed that slavery was evil. They did not believe that black men were equal, just that they did not need to be slaves. Exceptions to the rule, obviously. There, there is no one thing in history that says all of this is the same. God, that is a thick cocktail. I feel like the, the Tippleman's burnt sugar says this should have been shaken, not stirred. But here's where we're at. It said to stir it, so I stirred it. Now, 
the good news for the North, even though they pretty much hated the Irish and the Italians coming in, is that all those immigrants brought their ideas with them. And so the wealth in the North began booming as patent applications took off, and more people began working and earning their way out of poverty using nothing more than what they had up here. This also contributed to population centers staying concentrated in the North. That incidentally directly affected um, the Three-Fifths Compromise, so Civics 101. I'm sure everybody has heard of the Three-Fifths Compromise because it's horrible, right? There's no two ways about that. Saying that somebody is worth less than somebody else based on nothing more than the color of their skin is abominable and it's atrocious. But what the Three-Fifth Compromise did, state legislatures to the House of Representatives is a portion, or was apportioned based on population of freedmen. The compromise allowed for slaves to be counted as three-fifths of a person. And that was very much a check that was designed on slave-owning states to ensure that the power of the slave-owning states waned over the years. And it was working, like hands down. The Confederate states had been losing representations based on population count. At its height of power in the 1810s, Virginia had 23 representatives in the U.S. House of Representatives. By 1850, it had 13, because so many people had fled Virginia for parts where they might actually get ahead and stand a chance. Um, in that same time, uh, Pennsylvania went from 23 representatives to 25. The free states of Indiana and Illinois gained a lot of representatives. They went from you know zero, obviously, until they became full states to like 15 in the 1850s. New York went from 27 to 33, so they got uh, six more representatives. All of this is due to population explosions in the North. Between the 1840s and 1850s, Tennessee, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Virginia all lost seats in the House of Representatives, and that begins to cost them power. They can't maintain their power base if they don't have the representatives sitting in Congress. And that representation began directly affecting the laws that were passed, including the Compromise of 1850 where the only thing the South got out of that was help in retrieving fugitive slaves, while the North got all the remaining benefits. So in addition to the shifting powers in Congress, the actual policies of Northern states was creating inequality. While I check and make sure my camera is not overheating, I'm gonna try this. Hmm, that's not too bad. You know, so help me God, I think I should've tried the smoked whiskey with this one. I think this would be awesome with the smoked whiskey. It's not bad with the rye whiskey. And let's see, it's Renovation Rye Whiskey from the Depot Craft Brewery. Not too shabby, but I think the smoked whiskey would really blow this one out of the water. Anyways, so it's not that the policies in the North were actually affecting anything in the South because each state passes their own state laws. It's that the North was encouraging education, which we learned about during my review of American Nations. The South did not actively encourage education unless you were wealthy. Those who did receive education in the South received from Northern schools. They traveled up to Harvard to receive their education. They went to Princeton. Yes, Princeton existed then, they went to Yale. So they went to all these other schools that were always in the North and that directly affected things because the very wealthy could afford that, right? So the South was poorly educated, it's losing representation in Congress. The abolitionists were first seen as a fringe movement in the North but began gaining power as the courts began passing judgments that struck everyone in the North as grossly unfair. And the two big ones that are mentioned in the book are Prigg versus Pennsylvania, which I don't recall learning about in school, and I paid attention because I loved history, and Dred Scott versus Sanford, which I absolutely learned about in school. So the background of Prigg versus Pennsylvania is that in 1837, 
Edward Prigg was convicted of kidnapping in the state of Pennsylvania after having seized a slave woman and her children and returning them to Maryland where her owner was. This was legal, basically, under the federal law at that time. So let me explain what that means. If you actually read the Constitution, and you can you can do this, you can do this the easy way. You can go to um, I think it's like usconstitution.gov or something like that. I, you know, I'll include a link and do a search for the term slave. That does not appear in the Constitution until the passage of the Thirteenth and Fourteenth Amendments after the Civil War. The text of the Constitution, as it is written in Article Four, Section Two, specifies that quote. Any person held to service or labor in one state who escapes to another shall be delivered up on claim of the party to whom such service or labor shall be due. Does not specifically specify how that provision should be enforced, just that they need to be returned if they owe service. Now, in 1793, a federal law was enacted that allowed slave owners to cross state lines and capture their escaped slaves. And that had to be enacted because the Constitution just said that they had to be delivered to. But the northern states were like, well, we're not going to do it. <laughs> you do it. So the federal government had to pass a law saying, well, then they can cross state lines to do it. But they had to capture their escaped slave, bring them before a magistrate or court to prove ownership. And the slave had no legal recourse. There was no habeas corpus law that would free them. They were not able to present a case before the court indicating their status as free. There was no jury to judge the accuracy or truth of the slave catchers. Over time, this process degraded to the point where slave catchers would not even try to prove the person they had grabbed was actually an escaped slave. They would just grab a likely person who seemed to fit the bill and drag them off to bondage. So like, hey, you're a black guy of about 25 years of age whose, you know, eyebrow is shaped weird, you must be the same guy, even if it totally wasn't. And they would just drag them back off to slavery. Now, as abolitionism gained ground in the pop as a popular movement in the North, the North began enacting laws on the state level that did give rights of testimony, habeas corpus, and trial by journey, as well as opposing criminal penalties for kidnapping on the slave catchers, which brings us back to versus Pennsylvania. Now, after returning the escaped slave and her children to her owner in Maryland, Edmund Prigg was then convicted of kidnapping in Pennsylvania in 1835 and remanded to jail to serve a sentence for this. And Prigg's lawyers appealed the case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, which heard the arguments in 1842. And what was determined was that the Pennsylvania anti-kidnapping law was unconstitutional and that the original slave law of 1793 was constitutional. However, the courts also determined that uh, the enforcement of the fugitive slave laws was a federal responsibility and that states did not have to cooperate with the returning of the fugitive slave laws, which means essentially any slave catcher from the South had to be a federal agent or they were in violation of the state laws and, yes, could be held for kidnapping. Isn't that interesting? Um, so the northern states responded by passing more laws that prohibited the use of state facilities in the capturing of fugitive slaves, which meant that if a slave was caught, the catcher had to basically stay awake until back in the more cooperative south because they were not allowed to hold the slave in state-run prisons. And, of course, as soon as they slept, the slave would run away again because not dumb. Um, also in the north, the 
Underground Railroad, and this isn't specifically mentioned as being the Underground Railroad, but it amounts to the same thing. There was an entire network of people who were like, hey, oh my God, we heard these guys are coming for Joe and Betty. We got to get Joe and Betty the f*** out of here. And they'd move them out up to Canada. So a lot, a lot of slaves, several thousand at least, were smuggled over the border into Canada before, just ahead of the slave captures. And that's in the free northern states. That's not even counting the untold thousands that were shuttled through on the Underground Railroad. I'm going to get into that one too. I, um... I have a book on Harriet Tubman I want to read too because she was she was a hero. This ultimately fed into the passage of the 1850 Compromise with the new and harsher fugitive slave laws, uh, which required federal marshals to assist with the capture and all the messiness that that entailed. You can see the book on Millard Fillmore for how bad that was. I mean, he ended up like mobilizing National Guard units to capture and help and help with the retention and return of one single slave at the a one slave who might cost $500 in money back then and they would spend $100,000 in money back then just to catch him and return him it was an absurd waste of resources all of which contributed to the south remaining very poor except for the wealthy planter class the south every time the north passed a law that was like nope we ain't gonna help you the south saw this as a direct attack on their honor <laughs> never mind their loss of their slaves their their honor was offended because of course it was now the next case dred scott for those of you who did not pay attention in history class or who have been taught in a so post-social justice educational system included the eponymous dred scott who was the slave of John Emerson. John Emerson was an army surgeon. As he was with the military, Emerson traveled to Illinois from Missouri as part of his job with the army. Now, part of the 1787 Northwest Ordinance maintained that any territory or any state that was created from the Northwest Territory could not include slavery. And so that included Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Iowa, Michigan, Minnesota, Wisconsin, all of these states were carved out of that Northwest Ordinance. All of them were free states automatically because of that Northwest Ordinance. Emerson having was stationed in Illinois for several years, and while he was there, Dred Scott married a slave, another slave owned by Emerson, and she then gave birth to a daughter on free soil. After Emerson died, Scott and his wife and daughter were inherited by Emerson's widow. Friends of Scott advised him in 1846 that he should sue for freedom based on prolonged residency in the free state of Illinois, even though he was, again, residing in the slave state of Missouri. And the case went back and forth in the courts uh, at the state level for a time. Scott la uh, lost his first round, but won on retrial in St. Louis, and then lost on appeal and was sent back to slavery. Now, what's interesting about this is Missouri was a slave-owning state, right? That's that part of that Missouri Compromise. Missouri was technically above the 3630 parallel, but part of that compromise was that they already had slavery, so Missouri was going to keep slavery, and that would be the only state north of that parallel that would be allowed, outside of the ones that already existed. So Missouri, a slave-owning state, had granted freedom to other slaves in similar circumstances. And it's quite possible that if his owner hadn't pushed so hard on keeping her property, that we would never have known Dred Scott's name. Um, his second trial would have seen him free, heading north into safety, especially in the intervening 11 years before the Supreme Court heard the case, especially as his owner had moved to New York, which was definitely a free state during that time. 
ultimately, Dred Scott versus Sanford had very long-reaching implications. The arguments that were placed before the Supreme Court in 1856 were three. As Scott was black, was he even considered a citizen with the right to sue in federal courts? Two, did prolonged residency in a free state and territory translate into freedom for Scott automatically? And three, was Fort Snelling, where Emerson had been stationed, considered free territory? I mean, specifically, was the 1820 Missouri Compromise even legal under the U.S. Constitution? Did Congress in 1820 have the right to ban slavery in the Louisiana Purchase north of the 3630 parallel? And those were the three arguments that were made before the courts, and they were really devious in this. They started hearing it in 1856. They delayed releasing their judgment until after the election because they didn't want to affect Buchanan's chances. The court should never be political, but they were very political in this one, largely because the court was dominated by Southern judges. And they ruled that no, any person descended from Africans, regardless of whether they were free or slave, was not a citizen of the United States. Therefore, they could not sue the federal court. They determined the ordinance of 18, uh, 1787, excuse me, was a, uh, which addressed slavery and incoming territories, could not confer freedom or citizenship on non-white individuals, and that the 1820 compromise was not constitutional. The vote was not unanimous. Uh, there were two justices who wrote a dissenting opinion pointing out that the original 1787 comp ordinance had been written, passed, and signed into law by literally the founding fathers of this nation, including then-President George Washington, Secretary of State Thomas Jefferson, and Vice President John Adams, although John Adams was never a slave owner. But the founders themselves had denied the right of slavery in the northern states. It seemed fairly logical to assume that they wanted the gradual eradication of slavery. And since many of those same founders, um, like John Adams was still alive, you had James Monroe, James Madison, uh, they, they signed the 1820 Compromise into law. The dissenting opinion became kind of the voice of outrage in the North. Now, Dred Scott was announced more or less in Buchanan's inaugural address, um, and that set the stage for increased hostilities in Kansas, John Brown's militant activism in Kansas, and his raid on Harper's Ferry in West Virginia which ultimately led to his being hung in West Virginia, which Brown did not seem to mind. I mean, he recognized that his death would make him a martyr to the cause of freedom and pull many people onto the abolitionist side, and it, it really did. Brown's another interesting character. I also have a book on him. Of course I have a book on him and on Frederick Douglass and on, <laughs> on um, uh, Harriet Tubman. I mean... Of course I do, <laughs> naturally, and I will read all of them. But all of these actions, all, all of these court cases, the disparity of an income, resources, education between the North and the South, all led to this increased tension in the decades leading up to the Civil War. Everything the North did was seen as a mortal insult to the South. They got very offended quite easily. And the South's reactions to everything was so dramatically over the top that people stopped voting Democrat because then they could no longer support that over-the-top rhetoric. And in 1860, Lincoln was elected. And in 1861, South Carolina fired up Fort Sumter and the war was started. And that's where I stopped reading this week. You can 100% see parallels between the tension of the political situation in the 1850s and the political situ situation today. And 
having read how Civil War started a few months ago and just watching the world burn today, I can see where this is a distinct possibility for America. In this book, James McPherson consistently refers to them as North versus South rather than Republican versus Democrat, which is fair, like 100% fair, because there was a fairly large Democratic constituency that remained in the Union and remained loyal to the Union during the Civil War, despite Seward's and Lincoln's suspension of habeas corpus. But the reactions are the same. Um, in the 1850s, the Democrats threw a fit every time they didn't get their way. In the 2020s, the Democrats throw a fit every time they don't get their way. And then when the Democrats throw a fit, the Republicans respond in kind, doubling down on whatever is enraging the Democrats. And it goes the other way too, right? The Republicans have been known to show the, throw their share of fits. And then the Democrats double down. It's like they just enjoy pissing each other off and making the rest of us suffer along with them. It happened in the 1850s and it's happening today. Oh yeah, I, I uh, think we will definitely have another war. Because while just letting secession happen is an option, always, no politician would ever give up the power that comes from forcing others to do their bidding. They get off on it, guys. Witness the IRS. Which means war. It's going to happen. So join me next week when we see just how bad civil war in gun-toting America can get. Bye.